We all have darkness inside us, a secret side of ourselves we keep hidden away. But what would happen if our darkest urges manifested into a living, breathing person? Ask writer Thad Beaumont, because that's exactly what happened when his pseudonym, George Stark, came to life and started murdering people close to him. Iconic horror filmmaker George Romero teams with master of horror Stephen King for a look into the darkest aspects of the human psyche in the dark half. I'm Connor Izagari. And I'm Austin Johnson. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Filmgasm podcast where we dig into genre films, mostly horror. Today we're back in Stephen King's world, a place we never seem to leave very often and I'm very happy about. Today's topic, The Dark Half, is a very interesting story, but kind of a subpar movie, and uh, we'll get into that. But first, I've got one update for you of, on the rewind, a fun fact that takes us back to episode 50, our look back on the career of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Back in 2005, when the American remake of The Office was being developed for NBC, PSH was offered the lead role of regional manager Michael Scott. He turned it down presumably because he was not interested in going to TV, and the role went to Steve Carell, who became a superstar because of it. What would you, like, can you picture Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Office? Yeah, I can, because I, he can do anything, but I, I, I'm glad he didn't do it. Yeah, imagine the films he would have missed out on if he'd taken that exactly. role. Exactly, and just the, yeah, yeah. The films, the respect that he does have as a, a, a movie man, a film, film kind of guy so yeah yeah no, i know i'm i'm glad that didn't happen <laughs> yeah. and also he like the career that would have been taken away from steve carell that that too we wouldn't have seen the great performances you know in little miss sunshine or Foxcatcher or uh, the big short or whatever you prefer uh, he's had an awesome career and he did such a great job of balancing the arrogance and childlike innocence of michael scott that just yeah. worked so well over the course of that show yeah, I'm I'm not like a huge Office fan, but Steve Carell is damn funny in that show. Uh, once Michael Scott goes, that show kind of goes for me a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, I think most people felt that way. I like The Office. I've been I'm actually in the middle of a kind of half-assed rewatch of that. I'm on the second season. It's just it's so funny. It's so uncomfortable at times, but it's so funny. <laughs> did you Did you see that they're having to like adjust certain things about the show because of of uh, certain racial slurs that are in it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I don't think that's the right way to handle it. I, that's, that's tough. Yeah. I don't like erasing these things. I think just, you know, fess up to it, say, yeah, we fucked up. This is wrong, but here's what we did. Like leave it up to the, to the audience to whether or not they choose to watch it. That's the way I think they should do it. Warner Brothers did a great job of, of doing that one with their Looney Tunes. Yeah. And I think that's how they should, like, for example, they cut an episode of the Golden Girls that supposedly features him in blackface, but I heard that it's actually supposed to be like mud masks, like they're at a spa. Ah. So, I mean, <laughs> where are we going to draw the line here? Yeah. That, yeah. That's, I've asked that a lot about stuff. Where are we going to draw the line with a lot of things we, what, uh, yeah, there's so much we have to change if that's the attitude, you know? We're putting way too much effort into censoring television where we should be putting that effort towards 
reorganizing the police force and making sure that people aren't getting killed. That's what should be the priority here. I don't know why people have suddenly translated that into let's erase certain episodes of TV. That's not going to fix anything. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff happens. You know, I think it's more interesting to watch the office now and be like, Oh man, look how far comedy has come where Mm -hmm. you can't write those certain things, you know? And I think that's good to kind of, you pointed that out with um, last week when we were kind of talking about gone with the wind, right. And how it's been taken off of, it's being taken off of HBO max, I believe. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, shouldn't we see what's happened in history? That sort of attitude, you know? So it's, it's tough, man. It's, it's a, great situation with each tv show and each movie that comes along because let's be honest um a lot of the movies we've talked about in here a lot of movies we're going to talk about in the future there are certain aspects of it that are not you know politically correct but uh you know it's it's art it's a movie and you gotta try, try to get better as as you move on you can disagree with the content of something you can say like this is horrible this is racist i, I disagree with this but you have to acknowledge that it exists. You can't just erase it and pretend that it never happened. That's, that's what I take issue with. Yeah, exactly. And I don't want people to get confused with where we stand. I mean, of course, we, we talked about, um, for anyone who listens, we also have an Oscar Sunday show. And our first, first episode was about Pulp Fiction. And we brought up and talked about that ridiculous, audacious, stupid scene where Quentin Tarantino is saying stuff he shouldn't be saying like point blank period yeah. and now is and now as time has progressed he doesn't do that anymore he learned i truly believe he learned and he with himself obviously his characters oh, yeah. and his movies do i'm talking about himself it's way 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 different when you are writing a character for samuel L. jackson and you're doing these things or you're writing calvin candy for leo and he's doing these certain things but when you write this character for yourself <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> fucked up. And so and the N word for five minutes—that's pretty fucked up. Yeah, yeah, and we we talked about that. We're always going to bring those things up because that's going to dock points off of a movie for us here at Filmgasm. We just don't. We're just like, what's the fucking point of that kind of shit? But we're not going to completely disregard the entire piece of work, right? And we're not going to uh, erase and take that scene out of the movie and then just pretend it never happened because you don't learn anything that way. Exactly. You have you, exactly to progress. You have to you have to see the yeah. mistakes that have made in the past to correct yourself. So yeah, I I think we're on the same page, and I really hope our listeners understand that it's just uh, art is ever changing and always moving, and uh, I hope it keeps adapting. It's like when you get in trouble for something, denying it gets nobody anywhere, but fessing up and acknowledging your mistake and learning from it, we can progress. That's a hundred percent. That's how it works. Well, <laughs> hell yeah. Now on to a movie that has absolutely nothing to do with racism or society at all. Hey, hey, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you know, we can give our five minutes of what we, how we feel. And yeah, um, that's, that's what we believe. But um, at the end of the day, this is a podcast about movies. And you, you, you very well know that you can go to much better resources for actual news. This is, this is strictly about... Yeah. Strictly about this is strictly about movies. Uh, if you want to know about movies, come to Filmgasm. But uh, we definitely, we definitely feel the same way, Connor. And I'm glad we can share how we feel on the platform, but also talk about movies as well. Because um, yeah. I, I, I am someone who does need to kind of decompress and let my brain just kind of 
ride the wave of a movie or a book or, or some music. Um, whether, whether people look at that as weak or not, I don't really care. That's what I have to do for my, for my mental, mental state. So, uh, we're going to talk about the dark half today. (laughs) I see this podcast as very therapeutic. It's definitely a great way to just kind of unpack everything and just kind of, you know, throw that into the discussion. Yeah. We've always done that. Yeah. hundred percent. We'll, we'll continue to do that. We'll continue. And you and I, the way we are, I mean, as people, we want to, we're, we're always stuffing our brains with as much stuff as we can to, to learn and to grow and to try to be better as people. And, um, you know, we're both young, but we're, we're trying our best, you know? Yeah, exactly. So prior to this show, had you ever heard of the dark half? Like, were you familiar with this film and book? No, not no, at all. not at all. This is th- this. Okay. This is great because this is where you, where you draw the line in the sand dude <laughs> where this is where the Stephen King fans that are like me where it's like yeah I like Stephen King he's like I've read a couple books you know they're they're really good he's an incredible writer most of the big time movies are good right you know Stand By Me Shawshank you know the, the new it's that stuff I really like The Shining obviously but uh Dark Half that's a uh, that's more up your alley you're more in the circle of intense Stephen King fans who you really like to read all the stuff, then watch the movie. So um, what, what is your relationship with the dark half? So I'm definitely a King purist. I've, I try to read and see as much as I can. Yeah. I hadn't read the dark half prior to this show. I hadn't, it's, it's just been on my shelf. I didn't really know much about it. Uh, I read the book prior to the to recording um, over the past few weeks, because I wanted to be familiar with it. I wanted to have yeah. something to base the movie off of something to compare and it's a solid story it's very much a story just about you know identity and who you are when you're writing like is a little bit different than who you are every day it's you know i'm a writer as well so i i I know what that means i know what that feels like when you're writing something that's really fucked up that's violent that's grisly you try to separate your own self from that story. You know, it's not what you think. It's not what you feel, but it is in you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. hundred percent. I definitely know what you mean. And that goes down to, uh, if you're like someone who creates stuff, when you're pouring anything that you actually feel, you, you feel it, man, you know, and it, yeah. it shows and then it shows, it really does. You know, personal stuff is always the best, right? Yeah, for sure. And King's like some of his best stuff comes from actually writing about writing. And exactly. Yeah. The dark half is such a great book. It's got such a great, just consistent, creepy, unsettling tone that the movie, I don't think grasped as well as it could have and should have. It ended up being kind of a meh, you know, yeah. All right. Kind of movie like nothing special. You know, only the diehard King fans and, like, super horror buffs are really going to find this one. There's no casual, like, movie buff who's just like, oh, yeah, I love the dark half. Yeah, and he- here I am. I'm, you know, <laughs> I- I'm, a- I'm a film buff who likes to just kind of tackle all kinds of things. And the dark half is something that wasn't on my radar. And I like to watch things that aren't on my radar, right? Yeah. And this is this is one of those where you go into it like, all right, here we go. And, you know, you're kind of like – okay, okay, we're on a nice little jog here. And then it just kind of, for me, whew, just felt like uh, it was just kind of running, 
running to what as the movie went along. I don't know. It's yeah. tough. Yeah, that makes sense. The movie's really anticlimactic. Uh, yeah. So longtime listeners will know that the way we pick films mostly is we do random picks from what we call the book of filmgasm, which has just, you know, over a thousand uh, different potential movie topics. We pick a number, we look in the book and whatever movies next to that number, that's what we're going to do on the show. The dark half was one of those picks turn. And I don't know if it's something we would have chosen on our own, probably eventually, but I am glad it was chosen because there is a lot of interesting stuff here to talk about. For sure. And uh, let's get into it. Let's do this. So The Dark Half began life as a novel published in 1989. It was King's last novel before he got completely sober. And the themes of the novel definitely reflect that. Definitely, you know, Thad used to be an addict. He, you know, sobered up through his writing. He only gets... He only drinks and smokes when he's writing his George. <laughs> Damn. Like, it's freaky, you know, to have that kind of, he, he might be schizophrenic. There's definitely ways to read into this one. Um, the idea for the book came from King's own personal battle to maintain anonymity after someone threatened to blab about his pseudonym, Richard Bachman. So under the Bachman name, King published some of his darkest, most visceral stories, such as Rage, the Long Walk, Road Work, The Running Man, Thinner, The Regulators, and Blaze. King was outed as Bachman in 1985 after a bookstore clerk noticed similarities between King and Bachman's writing style. King announced the reveal right before the publication of Misery, which was supposed to be a Bachman novel. And he tried the Bachman experiment as a way to kind of see if people are buying his books because of his name or because of the talent of the writing. And in the end, he didn't really get a definitive answer because he was outed before he could really find out about this. But I've read a good chunk of the Bachman books, and it is dark. Like, his, his darkest stuff was written under Bachman, for sure. That's like, so fascinating because he's like, oh, I'm going to use this to actually get the stuff out that I want to. Yeah. Well, back in the day, typically, you were, as a writer, you would publish one book a year if you were good. If you were prolific. He wanted to write more. He wanted to publish more. So he, Bachman became that, his way of publishing another book. And uh, like Rage is about a school shooting. The Long Walk is about kids in a contest to walk the longest across the country and the last one standing wins like everything. It's fucking disturbing. Road Work is about a man pushed to the edge of his sanity after a overpass is built through his house and he's like forced to evacuate and he's like, fuck this i'm taking this overpass with me it's insane and then thinner's about a fat guy who kills a gypsy and gets cursed with uh weight loss it's fucking brilliant and uh all of those have been uh only thinner and the running man have been adapted to film from the bachman books and they're both pretty shitty movies <laughs> yeah i've seen i've actually seen thinner I, yeah i didn't like it at all <laughs> And the running man is fucking embarrassing. They turned it into a goofy Arnold Schwarzenegger game show. <coughs> and the book is very much not that. The book's pretty damn serious. Yeah, but, that's hilarious. <laughs> and uh, I haven't read The Regulators or Blaze yet, but I've, I haven't really heard much about that. I know The Regulators is like a secondary book to Desperation. Okay. And another one I haven't seen, I mean, or uh, read. One day. Now, there's always going to be more King to read. He's prolific as hell for every one you read he publishes three more 
It's awesome. Uh, <laughs> so, The Dark Half was written and directed by George Romero, iconic horror filmmaker known primarily for his landmark zombie films, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. He and King were very good friends. They collaborated together on Creep Show in 1982 and again on The Dark Half. Romero died in 2017 at age 77 from lung cancer. Dude smoked like a chimney, just nonstop for 50 years. And yeah, I think uh, his friendship with King may have impacted the quality of the film. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you don't want to, you know, mess with your friend's story. I get that. And uh, it just doesn't, tra- I think a lot of things in the dark half don't translate well. It's, yeah, and that uh, happens, right? That happens with Stephen King stuff for a lot, right? Where it's like, how do you, he's so good at writing. He's so damn good at taking however many pages he wants to describe something that it, it's so marvelous and magnificent that it just, it's not for film. It's not, it's not for the eye necessarily. It's more for imagination. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course we've seen it done a lot really well because he has so many great stories that it's, it's bound to happen. But we see so many times that these just kind of fall short because a director or a, a screenwriter doesn't quite know what to do. The biggest issue when translating King to film that I've noticed is the pace. Because King takes forever to, you know, build up your yeah. fence, the tension to establish the world, the characters before shit really takes off. Yeah, how do Ed you... Cemetery is the biggest one that has that problem, I think. Yeah, but yeah, the yeah. dark half definitely has a lot of that too. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, you can tell when you start watching more movies that are adept from, from King's stories, you can see that. You can see how movies sometimes are taking taking these wrong decisions where it's like it's either going to drag or it's going to fall short. It's, it sucks, man. It's, it's just hard. It's difficult. But on the opposite side of that, you have films like, like we recently just did 1922. And that was a brilliantly paced, well-made adaptation because it, it took the time and it took the necessary risks. I thought it was really good. Films like Dr. Sleep. Uh, I'm trying to think of recent stuff. Gerald's Game. It Chapter 2. It Chapter Both of those. It can be done. And it, it can be done well. But most of the time, it's not. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. We get more shit than we get great films when it comes to King's work. And, and it, it doesn't even need to be looked at it. Yeah. It is like horrible. It's like, oh, there's in the tall grass. Oh, there's, the I would rather grass. have a oh. bad movie than a boring subpar movie. Yeah. Because at Actually, least with a bad movie, you have something to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I definitely know what you mean. You have like a conversation, especially for this kind of a show, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Romero, though, uh, you've, have you seen the the Dead films? Yes, that's it, though. That's like really it. I've like tapped into with him. Yeah, that's that's for most people. His outside of zombie films, his other films are really bizarre. <laughs> um, I've. I haven't seen a lot of them. I've seen about half of Night Riders, which yeah, I haven't seen that. Is such it's it's like a modern day retelling of King Arthur as told by uh, a traveling biker circus. It's, okay, it's the strangest shit. Stephen King's in that one actually. He's uh in the audience like cheering them on. It's very weird. Uh, <laughs> 
I know Josh just did a review for Monkey Shines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I've heard is very strange. Uh, there's this movie, uh, I think it's Martin, a very strange vampire movie. Might be Marvin. I'm not sure. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But obviously Romero is forever going to be known for Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. And to a further extent, yeah. I think Land of the Dead, that was really good too. Yeah. But the dark half, he will not, that will not be, you know, listed among his greats. Uh, Oscar winner Timothy Hutton stars as both Thad Beaumont and George Stark. Hutton won an Oscar for his performance in 1980's Ordinary People. He has also appeared in such films as Taps, The Good Shepherd, French Kiss, and he had lead roles in TV shows like Leverage, American Crime, The Haunting of Hill House, and Almost Family, the latter of which was canceled right after a credible rape allegation was announced against Hutton. And uh, I actually think he's really good in this. He's the best part of this movie, I think. But mostly is Thad Beaumont. Yeah, 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 100%. Yeah, I agree with you. I think as we talk about this, I really enjoy the first 30, 30 40 minutes or so. And I think it's due to him as Thad, just kind of like, I, I talked to you before we started recording. I, I don't really like his performance that he won an Oscar for. Yeah, in ordinary people, I find him to be just a little—it's a little frantic and annoying. You know, just like the way he moves is not—it's not totally my style, right? Yeah. But uh, I agree with you when he's just working as Thad Beaumont, like when he's first having the confrontation with a guy who's like, "Hey, man, I know you. You know, I know you got some kind of fucking gimmick going on." He's—that's a good scene. He's good in that scene. And uh, but as it progresses, I think it gets a little tired and this movie just makes some decisions in the latter half that I just don't, I don't really like. Fair enough. His performance is, uh, as George Stark though, is pretty chameleon. Like I don't really see it is, Timothy it Hutton is. In there at all. I thought it was a yeah. different actor until I looked it up. Yeah. It kind of looks like Paxton a little bit. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. It reminded me of somebody while I was watching it. I don't remember who, but I thought like, oh shit, that's got that looks like that guy. I thought of Paxton from 1987, Near Dark, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. This is gonna <laughs> maybe it was Michael McKeon. Okay, yeah, yeah, there you see go. Him in there a little bit. Oh well, but uh, I think he's a far cry from the George Stark in the novel, who is just like a frightening force of like almost. Uh, uh, psychic for, force of nature who like knows it can anticipate everybody's move not just that but like he knows what everybody's gonna do and he's a lot more powerful with like the way he can manipulate Thad's mind it's it's it was really cool like in the book you really are nervous as to what this guy's gonna do next you really think like he will snap and kill everybody in this room immediately if it suits him in the movie he's he's really kind of watered down he's not that much of a, of a frightening character. I was actually kind of disappointed. Yeah. A little bit more like if it it feels like there's times where this sort of menacing kind of character is in these scenes, like, eh, whatever, you know, when, yeah, you should be, should be, ah, you know, screaming, frightening, like you don't want to be anywhere near this guy. I don't know. Yeah. I fell short a bit there. I think that happens a lot with King's villains. I think a lot of them are so great in the page that to put them on film yep. is next to impossible. Yep. 
Yeah. Like occasionally you get, you know, an Andy Wilkes and a Pennywise and Jack Torrance, but sometimes you end up with, you know, TV show Randall Flagg, which was okay, but way, way worse than what I wanted. You know, Randall Flagg is the, like the devil of Stephen King's universe. That's a, those are big shoes. I, I expect a lot when it comes to that guy. Yeah. And Matthew McConaughey didn't pull it off either. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> yeah. Lord have mercy. No, he did not. One day we're going to do the dark tower on this show and I'm going to lose my shit. Cause I've, I am so pissed off at that movie. Yeah, man. For, for as great of a run McConaughey had there, like in the, you know, 2013 14 stretch he he did he did you know he did that dark tower movie he did sea of trees like he's, what, what are you doing man you just had this awesome run and now you you just kind of sucked again there for a minute <laughs> <laughs> well also that film's biggest sin the dark tower series are eight books strong yeah. all averaging between 300 pages to a thousand pages long and you they took eight books crunched them together into an unrecognizable hour and a half PG-13 fantasy thriller. <laughs> Starring Matthew McConaughey. Who is this for, if not the King fans, the big-time King fans who spent hours, weeks, months going through the Dark Tower books, enjoying the you know Roland's journey from hardened warrior to hardened warrior with a family <laughs> it's yeah, such man. a great story and to see it butchered like that hurt yeah dude i i've read the first two and i was reading them uh a little prior to the movie coming out and when i saw the movie i was like oh it just deflated me like ugh, shit <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it it sort of hurt me, and I haven't picked the books up again since. And I will one day because I know they're great. My brother and you adore them. Uh, my old my older brother Jeremy is a big Stephen King fan as well, and he he loves those books. And I'll never forget the disappointment when that movie came out. Just all of my friends, you know, and now you that now that I've known you, you know, this movie came out before uh, you and I really started hanging out and doing the podcast. But my God. Had that movie come out while we were doing this podcast, we would have 100% had to do an emergency alert, alert, shitty movie podcast because that, yeah, that was, that was one of the more disappointing movies of the decade for me. Oh, hands down. It's, yeah, me just sitting there in the theater like, what is this shit? This is not the book I read. Like, yeah, yeah. I can't believe it. Oh, yeah, uh, man. Well, refocus. It's, uh, Dark yeah. Half isn't that bad. Dark Half's not, it's not Dark Tower bad, thank God. What'd you uh, give Dark Tower? What's on your, your review for it? What'd you give it? I think it's a five. Yeah. I, think, I liked Idris Elba's performance, but... Yeah, he has moments. Yeah. He's, he's not playing the Roland that I read. Like, this, that Roland had a goal. He wanted, you know, to find the tower, to protect it. This Roland's like, who gives a fuck, let it fall. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. Not only do you, like condense the books make it pg-13 you also erase the main character's fucking motivation abandon <laughs> abandon so yeah uh, yeah we could talk about it forever one day we'll do that movie for fun but, uh yeah <laughs> Dark the yeah 
when the book of filmgasm gives us the dark tower we'll get a full episode of Buster. it'll be a goddamn you know parade of just tearing that movie to pieces yeah it'll be an hour and a half of us just kicking the shit out of a dead horse yeah no we'll have to we'll make it like a little longer you know we usually try not to make the podcast longer than the movie but in that case we should make it a little longer just to just to fucking slap it in the face yes indeed uh <laughs> moving oh, on hate that movie <laughs> yeah uh oscar nominee amy madigan plays liz beaumont thad's wife she was nominated for her performance in 1985's twice in a lifetime she has also appeared in such films as Field of Dreams, Uncle Buck, Gone Baby Gone, and she appears in the recently released series Penny Dreadful, City of Angels. Liz is another character substantially watered down from the book. She has so much more to do in the book. Yeah, I would hope so, because she's... Uh, God, this happens too many damn times. In, in, in movies that are messing with the horror genre, you have the the wife who's just like come on you're not even trying you're not even trying with this character in this movie like no no shame on the actress just uh shit, shitty character yeah in the book i'm gonna be doing this a lot by the way in the that's book. no no th- this this is totally <laughs> necessary with some episodes yeah liz uh when she's captured by stark and we get that whole scene by the way in the book of stark killing the cops and trashing the house and like all that was cut out of the movie. Uh, she is p- planning to kill him the entire time. She has like, she has a pair of scissors hidden in her pants that she's like waiting to grab and like stab him when he gets close. When he finds the scissors, she grabs something else and hides it in the couch. Like she is very proactive in protecting her children and her husband. Like it's very clear that she's not going down without a fight. In the movie, she's yeah, kind of man. passive and kind of just lets shit happen. Yeah. Ah, so frustrating. I hate that, man. Ha- that happens too much in these kind of movies. Yeah, really does. And then for what I think is the biggest travesty, we have cult film actor Michael Rooker as Sheriff Alan Pangborn, a recurring King character who also appears in Needful Things, played by Ed Harris, and Hulu's Castle Rock series, played by Scott Glenn. Rooker has appeared in such films as Slither, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, and Guardians of the Galaxy. Walking Dead fans will know him as Southern shitbag Merle Dixon from the first three seasons of the show. And I love Michael Rooker, but he is so miscast as Alan Pangborn. It yeah, does not work. It, I picture somebody, you know, in their 50s, somebody who's been through the shit, somebody who is willing to you know, put their mind out there a little bit more to believe that something like this could happen. And Michael Rooker just seemed from the get-go, like he knows Thad's guilty and he's going to get him. And that's not the yeah. case of the book at all. At first, you know, Pangborn goes to see Thad and is like, I know you're guilty. And Thad explains his alibi and Pangborn's like, well, shit, I guess you're not guilty. Let's do this together. Let's figure this out. Why is somebody after you? So he actually works with Thad to get to the root of this problem. He doesn't immediately accept that George Stark is real, but he's he starts thinking about – he's the one who finds out that uh, that Thad had an operation to remove that twin. Okay, okay. Thad had no idea about that. He didn't – like, he was told it was a tumor. He never knew. He never met the doctor. The doctor getting killed, none of that's in the book. Okay. 
Pangborn's the one who finds out about the twin and starts thinking, oh shit, maybe George Stark is real. And he goes to the cabin to find out and meets George Stark and is like, oh shit, he was right. Sure. It's a great scene and it's a great story arc and we don't get any of that. Ugh, damn. You're kind of making me like it less. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend the book. It's a good read. It's a pretty quick yeah. read. Too. Yeah. Sounds awesome. You get a better version of this story. <laughs> But yeah, Michael Rooker is awesome. Uh, I have not yet seen Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. I've heard it's one of the most disturbing films ever made. Uh, but I've also heard it's like his definitive performance. So one day I'll, you know, stomach that movie. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I love him as Yondu in the Guardians of the Galaxy films. He's fucking great. Oh, man. What, yeah, we'll have to find a way to um, tackle some of the Marvel movies at some point, you know, just they're in the book. Yeah. There you go. Okay, cool. I put them in the book. Yeah. I added a whole bunch of sci-fi action and fantasy films. So good, good. I was going to suggest, yeah, we throw the MCU movies in there because I'll be fun to trip up on one of those one day. All the MCU movies are in there. All the DC movies are in there. The Fox X-Men movies, like the Superman films, anything I could think of or goes in there. So hell yeah. If it's a genre film, Odds are it's in the book, and we will do it eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, they're the principal members of the cast. Uh, nobody else is really worth talking about, I don't think. The Dark no. Half has an IMDb score of 6.0. Rotten Tomatoes score 56%. It was a box office dud, grossing only 10 mil on a budget of 15 mil. So that's a bummer. And uh, let's get into the plot. Let's try to unpack this thing. So we open in Castle Rock, Maine in 1968. We meet 13-year-old Thad Beaumont. He's a young kid, wants to be a writer, spends many hours in his bedroom writing violent stories with these little black pencils. And again, in the book, (laughs) the black pencils don't come into play until much later, and they're a pretty significant part of George Stark's character. But... God. Yep. (laughs) Uh, His mother buys him a typewriter, and uh, he starts, after he starts using that, he starts having violent headaches and he starts hearing birds, particularly sparrows. They coincide with the headaches. And uh, one day he's about to get on the school bus. He collapses, has a seizure, gets taken to the hospital where x-rays reveal he's got a brain tumor and they have to operate fast. The operation reveals that the growth in his brain is pretty grisly. We actually see his a piece of his skull get removed. We don't often see that. That was, I don't ugh. Pretty gross. <laughs> Brain surgery is fucking gross, and I don't want to see it. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, just thinking any time you, if you're yeah, if you're someone who can who really imagery is big for you, and of course horror horror fans usually that's the case, right? And uh, the the brain when you think about it being touched or poked or anything where it's like being pressed at all you're just like it, it it messes with you a lot it's uh it's a great way to open up a movie like this have you seen saw three? Oh yeah you remember the brain surgery scene i know i know that's that's one of the first things that came to my mind yeah. <laughs> god yeah while they're doing the, they remove the piece of skull and a fucking eyeball opens in thad's brain and one of the nurses screams and runs out. And I love one of the other, like the doctor's like, remember where you are. 
Like, you got to have an iron fucking stomach to not freak the fuck out when you see an eyeball blink in someone's brain. Yeah, I find that to be the percentage of people that are okay with that in that room is is off. Yeah, nobody even reacts. They're just like, all right. Just one, just one person has a problem with that out of like eight. Come on now. There was a line in the book that went even further in that. When the woman freaks out and runs out, the doctor says, find out her name. I want her fired. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, no freaking out on eyeball brain here. So the operation reveals that the growth is actually a fetus that had started to develop. Uh, Thad was a twin in the womb, absorbed the other embryo. And even though the embryo was absorbed, it started growing inside Thad's head. And this is what was causing the headaches. So the growth is removed. And while the growth is removed, thousands of sparrows swarm the hospital and are seen outside, just flying around like it's Hitchcock's The Birds. And uh, again, the sparrows, way better explained in the book as well. I'm sure, yeah. That's, well, that's one of those things that, yeah, it's, it's tough to translate. Yeah. 23 years later... <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I love saying eh, something George Romero did you know like I know we're yeah. he could have done better some horror purists are going to kick our fucking asses for this one well here's yeah there here's the thing here's the thing about that that's fine and I'm okay with that I can take that right I I I'm used to I'm used to being the guy who's not as well well versed now I feel the same way about Wes Craven though right where it's like oh yeah yeah, there's some good stuff, but it doesn't all hit. Just because his name's Craven doesn't mean shit to me, you know? Dude, two weeks um, ago, we shit on Swamp Thing for an hour and a half. Exactly. exactly. And here, here we are talking about Romero, who's, yeah, looked at as one of the Titans. Yeah. And he may be, he may be you know, mm-hmm. depending, on how you, depending on how you look at it and the way, the timing of those, the dead movies. But uh, nobody's untouchable. And um, this is not, yeah, this is just not that well-crafted. There is no ass that gets kissed on Filmgasm. Everyone no. has faults. And it's not yeah. like we're shitting on Dawn of the Dead here. I mean, this is the dark. No, act. yeah, no. And we'll, we'll, of course, do those at some <laughs> point. We'll praise them. We will praise the shit. Oh, they're great movies. Just, yeah, we praise great movies and we, you know, we shit on bad ones. That's just how it works. <laughs> and, and, and we shit on the aspects that are bad about the good ones. Because that's, yeah. just, that's just how it, how it goes here. We call it like it is. Yes, we do. And the dark half has a lot of problems. Got a lot of calling out to do. Yes, Thad. indeed. Thad. Thaddeus Beaumont. That sounds like the fucking pen name. Yeah, all right. That That's a name right there. Thad Beaumont. I, I don't think of Timothy Hutton when I hear that name. <laughs> you know what's Thaddeus Beaumont sounds like a disgraced, like, Civil War general. Yes. That, like, is played by, like, Christopher Walken, not, not fucking Timothy Hutton. A grizzled Robert Duvall. <laughs> just, exactly, exactly. It's an awesome name. King's great at names, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, they're probably just rolling around in his head all day. I can't imagine, like, his thought processes. Like, everything that happens to him has got to just be like, that could be a story. <laughs> that could be a story. That could be a story. Like, he can't turn that off. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> no. Because I like reading yeah, the... Uh, yeah the afterword in his books because they'll always kind of explain a little bit of like where the idea came from. And sometimes it'll literally just be like, I was walking through the parking lot and some guy was changing a tire. And when I went home, I wrote a story about that. <laughs> like, fuck. Okay. That's awesome. 
<laughs> Cocaine. These days, though, it's just I don't know. He, he, like he's addicted to work. Like he just yeah, no, he, he yeah, not stop. I'm okay I think with that. he. I think he's found something that he's truly frightened of, which is losing his creativity. Right, like because he's getting old. Well, uh, and eventually, eventually, it's just you know it ends, and I think he's like, I got to keep doing this. Well, in the early two thousands, he was hit by that van. You know, he had a brush with death that really yes. changed him. Yeah, and ever since he's just been you know on a nonstop kick, just a tear. Yeah, it's been great work. A lot of it's been really, really good shit. Like it's some of the best of his career, I think, in the past like five, six years. Yeah, that's so cool. Love that. <laughs> like I just read his recent book, uh, his novella collection, "Let uh, If It Bleeds," which was really good. Four great stories. So yeah, keep it, keep on keeping on, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. King. I will man. keep reading. That's for damn sure, Steve. <laughs> um, so twenty-three years later, we meet Thad Beaumont. He's a successful writer who teaches a writing class at the local university. Another thing that comes up a lot more in the book is him as a teacher. Uh, nobody knows he's actually the writing novels under the name George Stark. Violent, visceral, grisly novels that are praised for being just as over the top as you can fucking get. And these are the successful novels. He tried writing under his own name and the books just didn't sell. His agent says what my favorite line in the movie, and I don't remember this in the book, but it's a fucking great line. I read George Stark because it's fun. I read Thad Beaumont because it's my job. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's that that that's a jab. Yeah, big time. <laughs> uh, he's married to Liz. They have uh, twin children, uh, Wendy and William. I don't think we ever hear the kids' names in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about that. The kids really aren't. Um, the kids and wife really aren't at times just like kind of a decoy in the movie, which I I just can't stand it. I can't stand when there's not depth to the the family. They're very much a plot device. Like they're just there to get kidnapped. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. It's in the book, we get a lot of insight into Wendy and William's relationship. Like there's a scene, there's a scene in the book where Wendy falls off. Uh, I think she falls down the stairs and she has a grisly bruise on her chest. And William suddenly starts developing the same bruise despite not having fallen down the stairs. Like he, because they're twins, like he shares in the pain. It really, he did a great job exploring the nature of twins in that book. None of that comes up in the movie. Frustrating. Um, one day after class, a strange man named Fred Clausen shows up and addresses Thad as George Stark says, can you sign my book? And Thad's like, it's not me. He's like, yeah, it is. I know. (laughs) This slimy little shit. Yeah, dude, he, he's like a cricket from It's Always Sunny. <laughs> he totally was. He was cricket. Oh, cricket my cricket. God. <laughs> oh. So Fred <laughs> reveals that he knows Thad's been using a pseudonym to write these novels, and he demands blackmail money to keep his mouth shut. And the only reason Thad's doing this is because he doesn't want celebrity status. He doesn't want his family's privacy to be violated. I get that. And... uh well, that's the reason he says. The real reason is George Stark came to life and said, I'm going to write this shit, and you're going you're gonna to watch. <laughs> 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 Basically what happened. And uh, 
Sad says, like, I'll think about it. And uh, signs his book, George Stark. I love that. He doesn't Me sign too. it Thad Beaumont. He signs it George Stark. That was a nice touch. Yeah. This whole thing happens way different in the book as well. I, uh, after he goes public, Clausen calls him and is like, you son of a bitch, way to cut me out. <laughs> okay, wow. I wish we got to see that. That would have been awesome. <laughs> I know, especially with Clausen. And uh, Thad goes home and tells his wife what's going to happen. And he's like, she's like, well, why don't you just come clean? And he's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to. I'd rather not pay blackmail money. And if I do it myself, you know, it'll maybe jumpstart my own book sales and the start catalog will probably, you know, double in sales. So he calls his agent and his, his agents are uh, Miriam and uh, Rick. I think it was Rick Callie. I think. Well, anyway, his agents are both like, yeah, this is a great idea. Go ahead. We totally support you. And then as soon as he hang up, hangs up, they're like, shit, what are we going to do? <laughs> That's our cash cow right there. George Stark sells. People like reading about fucked up shit. And yeah, it's true. There's so much of King's own career in this, in this story. <laughs> I know, man. I know. Um, <laughs> so he comes clean. He organizes a... Uh, a reporter to come interview him. He's revealed George Stark is huge in this world, by the way, you know, it's not like just, you know, some, you know, local writer, George Stark is an international best-selling author. So this is big news. And uh, the reporter and the uh, journalist, I mean, the um, photographer they send with him decide to have a fake burial for George Stark. They go to Castle Rock Cemetery. They put a big, Fake George Stark tombstone. His epitaph says, not a very nice guy. <laughs> yeah. And Thad's almost like he's sad to kind of bury George Stark. This is, you know, he's his constant writing partner. Some of his best work came out of George Stark. So he's kind of sad to let this go. And uh, he has a, the photographer, Homer Gamash, by the way, is in the book. Homer Gamash is just some, some guy who, some trucker dude and the photographer was somebody else. They just decided to combine those two characters to save time. Uh, a few days later, local grave digger calls the police when he discovers a large hole at the gravesite where the fake grave was like somebody crawled out. It's crazy. <laughs> and uh, soon everyone who knew about George Stark, everyone connected to Thad starts getting murdered brutally the photographer homer gamash gets picked up by uh picks up a hitchhiker and then gets beaten to death with his own prosthetic leg i mean fuck <laughs> that's that's personal right there talk about talk about grizzly and then he drove homer's blood-covered truck to a uh parking lot and stashed it like he's got very clear fingerprints everywhere and we're led to believe pretty much from the get-go that this is George Stark who came to life to, for revenge for Thad killing him off like this. Uh, he gets Miriam, home, uh, one of Thad's agents, gets her in New York. This was pretty brutal. This was done pretty much just like it was in the book. This was done really well. It was really unsettling. He drags her into her apartment, uh, slices her face, makes her call Thad, 
to tell her she's going to die, <laughs> to tell him she's going to die. And then she leaves a message. He cuts the phone cord and then cuts her throat. It's yeah. really fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> and Sheriff Alan Pangborn shows up at Thad's house saying, you know, you're, you're under suspicion of murder. We found your prints at the crime scene. And Homer was a friend of Pangborn, so he's taking this very personally. And Thad is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was in New York. I can, you know, I have alibis. I didn't do this. And uh, he says, you know, check out that guy, Fred Clausen. He was weird. Maybe he did this. And they check him out, and he's been brutally murdered as well. His dick was cut off and shoved in his mouth. And he was, because <laughs> that's what you do to a squealer. That's what George Stark would do to a squealer. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, that part is crazy when he says that, uh, when Thad says it, like, around his family. Yeah. And then it's, yeah. <laughs> and the phrase, the sparrows are flying again, is written in blood on the wall. Very Harry Potter-like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm kidding. That, <laughs> that phrase and the, I, that makes it, Okay. So yeah, take your time. Yeah. (laughs) The sparrows in the book are a representation of Thad's ability to control George Stark, which does not come up much in the film. Stark knows nothing about the birds. So Thad uses these birds to take control of George at random times to learn things. And in the end, he uses these sparrows to fuck him up. And I wish we'd gotten a little bit more of an explanation of that in the film, because if you haven't read the book, you're a little lost in what the hell that's all supposed to be. And yeah, just it, it could have been to- it could have been said better. Yeah, it could be. Uh, that's a really cool representation. Yeah, very cool. Uh, Thad calls Sheriff Pangborn with a message. You know, says like, "Hey, Miriam left a message on my on machine. I think she's dead. You got to call the NYPD. They got to check on her, and they find her dead in her apartment." And, Thad's starting to get, you know, freaked out. Everyone he knows is being murdered because of him. And they send a, uh, they put a uh, tracer on Thad's phone and immediately George calls him. And Thad knew it was him. He answers, what do you want, you son of a bitch? And (laughs) there's certain scenes in this that are done really well. Yes, yes. And George is like, hold on now, that's not very nice. Like he has a Southern drawl. He's from Mississippi. And uh, he tells, he lies and tells Thad, you know, oh, it's over. I'm not doing it anymore. I did what I had to do and it's over. And Thad's like, I don't believe you. You stay the fuck away from my family. And George is saying this because he knows that he's being traced. So he's, you know, giving them a bone, but it's far from over. <laughs> uh, there's that one scene where, Thad, where uh, Stark finds um, Mike Donaldson, the journal, the reporter, and like just keep slashing him in the hallway. That was fucked up. When the guy like he's yelling help, and that guy opens the door, and he's like, "What's going on in here?" And Stark's like, "Murder. You want some?" <laughs> like, fuck. <laughs> there's there's really good bits in this film. It's done really well at times. For sure, awesome aspects. Yeah. That, that you know, I, we are dealing with Romero. We've talked about how he is great and has this huge stature. So yes, there are moments that are fucking awesome yeah 
And like, this isn't the first Romero film we've done, by the way. We did Creep Show way back near the beginning. So yeah, you're out. right. You're right. That's one that I think is due for a redo in the, in the future. All the ones I did by myself, I would like to redo with our, you know, typical format. But uh, yeah, we like Romero. And he's really good at establishing tone at times. And I think the Stark murders are some of the best scenes in this film. Yeah, I agree. They're really creepy. <laughs> yeah, I just wish everything else around it in the second part of the movie was, was a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he, he kills that guy, kills Mike Donaldson. Sneaks into Thad's publisher, Rick Cowley. I was right. And uh, slashes him to death. He uses a straight razor. That's his typical weapon of choice. Kills two cops who were there as guards. Stark goes through cops like fucking tissue paper. It's ridiculous. He kills so many cops. (laughs) And uh, after this, Stark calls Thad again, threatens to kill everybody he knows unless he starts writing novels as George Stark again. Says he wants to write another book. And we learn later on that the reason Stark wants to write another book is because he's waiting. He's fading away. He's rotting because he's not real in the fullest sense of the word. Thad is real. Stark is more of a manifestation. He's more of a projection. Yes. And he needs the book, the Stark novels to stay alive. Now I always like the way I saw it was uh, George Stark to me is a tulpa. A uh, being yeah. made of like a being manifested from belief. Like if you believe it's real, it will come to life. And that's what I think George Stark is because of those millions of readers reading George Stark novels and thinking this guy's a great writer. I'd love to meet him someday. Yeah. The, yeah, I agree with you. I think the energy surmounts into an actual being Yeah, that, that, that is walking around terrorizing stuff. Yep. Super but freaky. After, but after Thad killed Stark ceremoniously and, you know, announced that he's the real writer, belief started to fall apart. And now Stark, you know, is, fall, is dying. I don't know. I, there's a lot of ways you can read into this. You can even read that it was Thad the whole time and he's schizophrenic and fucking nuts. Yeah, yeah. It's up Which to you what, uh, to yeah. interpret it. That's what Pangborn believes. Uh, yeah. So Thad, uh, uses the birds. He realizes that he can control these birds to kind of peek into George's mind. And he does that at the university and starts, that's where he finds out Stark's dying. But then Stark realizes it and says, get out of my head and makes him stab himself in the hand with a pencil. (laughs) And those pencils, uh, Stark would only ever write his novels in longhand. He would fill pages with these pencils. And that, again, really doesn't matter in the movie. <laughs> but it's huge in the book. Thad, when he's going to face Stark, grabs, goes to a store and buys his own pencils as like a weapon. So yeah. Stark can't like take control of them because he's never touched those pencils. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Thad decides he's got to investigate where George Stark came from. So he goes to see the doctor who treated his brain tumor and he tells him about the underdeveloped fetus he found in his brain and Stark just shows up and kills the doctor in another room and then leaves. And Thad's like, hey doctor, and finds his body and leaves and says like, 
you might want to call the cops to the people in the waiting room. It's so fucking guilty. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. He's framing his ass, and uh, Thad is like, huh. Thad's hair flops around a little bit, and he's like, what do I do? <laughs> God damn it. None of that is in the book. In the book, the doctor is on a vacation in Yellowstone and Pangborn is constantly trying to get a hold of him and finally does. And that's when the doctor tells Pangborn, Oh yeah, we found a fetus in his head. And Pangborn's like, Oh shit, George Stark. And he puts it all together. Thad not only ever finds out about this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. It's, yeah. It's, it's weird and lazy. And, uh, Thad flees from the cops. Stark calls him again and says, guess where I'm calling from? He's abducted his wife and kids and threatens to kill them unless he meets at the Summer Lake house and starts writing as George Stark again. So much just gets passed over from the book. They really just, like, they, they put in the key scenes, but they took the bridges out. Like, there's nothing really getting us to the scenes anymore. We're just like, all right, this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and then the movie's over. We have no buildup to anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's frustrating. Uh, Thad confides in a professor colleague named Reggie. Tells him all, or uh, she tells him that Stark's embodiment was a result of Thad encouraging his dark side to start writing. And that in order for Thad to defeat Stark without killing himself, he has to confront his dark half. None of this is in the book either. Reggie tells Thad that the appearance of the sparrows are conduits of the bringers of life or death. And whoever's in control is the one who can wield the sparrows and determine who's going to die and who's going to live. And the stronger one typically can control these. And right now it's Thad, but if Thad starts writing as Stark again, it's going to be Stark. (sighs) In the book, he's got a colleague who studies mythology who also doesn't believe that well actually no uh thad doesn't tell him about stark he just says like hey what are sparrows in mythology and he looks it up and he finds out about the psychopomps as he calls them uh then he takes his car and says like when this is all over you got to tell me what the hell's going on (laughs) Thad's like all right I, i will so Thad drives out to the Summer Lake House where he confronts George Stark face-to-face, who is now just fucked up. He's covered in bandages and bleeding like pus. Looks like a golem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he has Stark's kids. I mean, he has uh, Thad's kids, and Liz is tied up in the living room. Stark forces Thad to start writing a new book about Alexis Machine, Stark's main character. Thad tries to solve for time, starts discussing the violent nature of the book. Thad starts writing and tells Stark to take over the writing. And as Stark starts writing, we see Stark's wounds start to heal and Thad starts having his wounds. So he's, the transfer is happening. And uh, while this is happening, millions of sparrows are coming up around the house. Thad is using his willpower to bring the sparrows here. This is so much more significant in the fucking book. <laughs> It's so frustrating because the movie, it means nothing. But in the book, it's like, oh, shit, it's finally happening. <laughs> God damn it. George, what happened? George. 
<laughs> Ugh. <laughs> so Thad tries to grab Stark's gun and Stark grabs him and is like, don't do anything stupid. Just ride this out or, you know, and I won't kill your children. And Thad's like, no, and jumps on him and they, they have a scuffle. And uh, Stark nearly shoots one of his kids and Thad hits him with the typewriter. And the sparrows that are like attacking the house start coming through the win- windows and the, and the walls and attack Stark and start ripping him to pieces. Meanwhile, Alan Pangborn shows up for some reason. <laughs> and how the hell did he know where they were going in this, in this movie? He knew where they were in the book because it made sense. <laughs> and he just fights his way through the birds, helps Liz out of the chair, and just kind of holds her back as upstairs Stark is ripped to pieces by these birds. And they just carry his corpse away well, into like the great wide open <laughs> as Thad and Liz and the twins kind of look on. Pangborn's, I guess, in the corner somewhere. And the movie's fucking over. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> oh, it's it's barely recognizable at times. The ending is fucking ridiculous. <sighs> yeah, absurd. And you you feel like you're on this roller coaster that just instead of it having that ultimate like you know whoosh or going on a loop de loop, it just has like a dead end. You're like oh, it's, all right. It's a roller coaster that you know you keep going up and up and up and up and up, and then you get to the top. And it's just an even path that goes like 25 miles an hour. Just like, all right. And then you get off. <laughs> just going just gonna, to just gonna go. Yeah. All right. God damn it, George. Yeah, frustrating, man. I know you, obviously you, you have the connection to the book. I, I, I just think it from a – as like a, a horror movie, which I don't think it is a total horror movie, but, you know, if it, if it has one genre, I guess that would be it. And I, I think, one, I think they should have, if they're going to hone in on something, really hone in on it and focus on it. I don't think the movie needs to be two hours when they clearly didn't know what exactly they wanted to figure out about this story, right? Yeah. Like you said, it, it, like you said a, a, a few times, this, makes, this means so much more in the book, has so much more significance, the sparrows and that sort of thing. And, that, and, and Liz, his wife, that's really frustrating. Yeah. Because you, if you're going to give two hours to a film, you would like to think that there's going to be that depth there. Yeah. But if there's not, if there's not, and you're going to rely on, you know, Timothy Hutton doing some fun stuff and the Stark character being creepy, I just don't think it needs to be this long. Um, for that reason, I, I give it a seven overall. I think it's got some good aspects, but uh, I was disappointed at times. I too would give it a seven, mostly because I I do enjoy Timothy Hutton's performance, and I do like the first half of the movie, really. And uh, just the big thing that the film loses is the relationship between Thad Beaumont and George Stark. You feel that they've been together forever in the book, that they've always, like, looked out for one another in a weird way, and then Stark is so hurt by being cast aside that he's willing to do anything to get back into Thad's good graces. He wants Thad to care about him more than anything. You, he's so layered in the book. Everyone's so layered because King's a goddamn great storyteller, but it's so lost in translation here that Stark just becomes another caricature. And the relationship is nearly gone. Yeah. Ugh. Ah, <laughs> 
Bummer. Uh, well, here's some film guys and facts for you. Number one, in the prologue, Thad Beaumont wants to become a writer and he's shown writing stories. The title of his first typewritten story is Here There Be Tigers, which is also the real title of the first short story King ever wrote. And uh, the story can be found in his anthology collection, Skeleton Crew. And I've read it, and it's a very weird story. <laughs> Here There Be Tigers. Basically, a, uh, a kid in school goes into the bathroom and sees a tiger and is like, hey, everybody, there's a fucking tiger in the bathroom. And the teachers are like, stop lying, get back to your chair. And then the tiger eats somebody. Jesus. <laughs> it is, original doesn't always mean good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. But very it is true. the first thing he ever wrote. And it's cool that he included that in his you know, collections. <laughs> Number two, and I don't think this will surprise you one bit. According to George Romero, Timothy Hutton was quite difficult to work with at times. Hutton <laughs> would quit the film for a few days during production. Yeah, he yeah, seems like that kind of guy. Yeah, well, yeah, and as as we've seen in more recently, some allegations come out, and uh, yeah, we're not big Hutton fans here at Filmgasm. And number three, until the Stephen King-based film 1922 came out in 2017, the dark half was the most faithful adaptation of a King work to ever be filmed. This was possibly because writer-director George Romero and King were good friends. That, what does that say about the rest of King's work? <laughs> that this, which cut out so much, was the most faithful adaptation. <laughs> Crazy. I would argue that, like, I don't think that's true. I think Misery is a much better adaptation. Uh... If we're talking like pre, like 1993, yeah, they stand yeah. by me. Uh, yeah, Shawshank hadn't happened yet, regrettably. Uh, yeah, just literally a year later, crazy. Uh, fucking Carrie, maybe. <laughs> there you go. Someone's talking shit because that's there's no way in hell this is the most well adapted. No, 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 no. Uh, there is a remake slated for development with MGM. With, I've uh, seen that. Alex Ross Perry set to write and direct, and he's the writer of Her Smell and Christopher Robin. So, I don't know. It's a weird we'll see. pick. Christopher Robin, like, hey, make a Stephen King movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, have um, fun. <laughs> and yeah, I give it a seven. Romero did what he could, but some things just don't translate all that well from page to screen, and Hutton does a great job. I think the rest of the cast is underwhelming and forgettable. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, this, this is, um, one of those though, that if you, if you are a big King fan, you got to check it out though. You know, it's, it's got some stuff that you, you'll really dig. And, uh, if you, if you like his stuff from, especially from the, you know, the eighties, nineties, then check it out. Yeah. I sat, I mean, you know, I sat through the three and a half hour Salem's Lot miniseries that I thought was boring and shit. So I, I, I'll watch fucking anything that like, King's got his name on. If I can watch that and yeah. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Ugh. <laughs> well, that takes us into the spotlight where we talk about some of the films we've been watching outside the podcast. Uh, why don't you start us off? What have you been checking out lately? Uh, a lot of stuff, you know, we're always watching a bunch of stuff, but I like to really uh, focus on one film. Uh, I'm going to try to, as we do the spotlight, otherwise I'll, I'll ramble on for, for days, my man. So I'm going to go with a movie I recently reviewed. 
you can check out that review on filmgasm.com. That's the movie directed by Radu Munten from Romania. That's Tuesday After Christmas from 2010. Uh, this is a movie that I found on the Criterion channel because I used to live in Romania for, for some time back when I was 17 and 18. And, um, you know, I had some very, very good experiences there and I miss it quite a lot. And I felt like, oh man, I should check out some Romanian films. You know, there's, there's actors that are Romanian that I like. And, um, there's been, you know, I've read some stuff and Tuesday after Christmas is one that I've read. That's one of the better ones of the decade. And it's, that's true. This movie is jaw dropping, incredible cinematography, incredible acting. It's about um, a man and a wife who are seemingly very dedicated to one another, but the the man is cheating and sleeping with a younger woman, and it's a classic. I, I would compare it to something like if you if you like more, you know, if you really dig into American films, like something like Marriage Story. It's similar to that. Um, very raw, very authentic. At times, you feel very uncomfortable because you're like, oh shit, this is what people really go through. And there's a there's a certain showdown that goes down between husband and wife towards the end of the film. That is that is one of the more impressive scenes I've watched lately. Um, again, I have a connection to Romania because I lived there for a little bit, so I'm going to try to watch more Romanian stuff. But um, I, I encourage people if you feel connection to any country. Um, I know you recently went to Colombia. Yeah, there's a there's a huge Colombian noir section on uh, Criterion Channel. And it's a bunch of you know noir films from you know years ago that are Colombian. You know, wow. And I, I encourage people that feel a connection to any any nation, uh, whether it be somewhere in Europe or Africa or wherever, to seek out films from those places. Um, you can you can learn a lot if you're someone who watches movies a bunch already, like us then you should probably throw in some stuff that's going to teach you some stuff here and there, right? Um, movies are great distractors, but they can also be great teachers, great teachers. One of my favorite teachers of all time uh, are, are movies. And I think this is one of those that you can, uh, Tuesday after Christmas is one of those. If you happen to have any connection to Romania, I highly, highly suggest it. It's very cool. There's certain things you see in Bucharest, the capital that are awesome. So love this movie. I gave it a nine. Um, I think on a second rewatch, it could move up to a 10. It's that kind of movie where it's like, whoa, just washes over you uh, like a wave. And uh, very good. What have you been checking out lately? Um, I, nothing that poignant. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, hey, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't always watch something that, that heavy. And I'm not always watching Romanian stuff. So, <laughs> uh, I've been uh, mostly w- working my way through Netflix like I have been for the past few months. Yeah, yeah. So what's like been the past like three or so you've knocked out off there? I watched the 2005 remake of Bad News Bears uh, starring Billy Bob Thornton. I had no idea it was Linklater. That was a a bombshell. And uh, it was way funnier than I expected. It was uh, Billy Bob is just a funny fucking dude. The the insults that man comes up with is funny as hell. And uh, it was just an endearing, you know, sports comedy. You know they're gonna fucking lose, but you know that it's gonna be a you know learning experience. And I thought it was funny. Uh, another one yeah, I watched. I was, love that movie. It was it was good. Uh, the Squid and the Whale. 
I watched that. Oh boy. Oh boy. And it was it was good, but God, what terrible people! All of them are such monsters. They're just arrogant intellectuals who shit on anybody who doesn't have a fucking doctorate. It's the, the I hate those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The best way to describe that movie to someone who hasn't seen it, if you like Noah Baumbach, go for it. You know, yeah. um, it. My favorite part of that movie to kind of like talk about when I talk about Squid and the Whale is there's a scene when Jesse Eisenberg's character is at school and one of his classmates is reading This Side of Paradise uh, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he's like, oh, it's Meyer Fitzgerald. <laughs> what an <laughs> he's asshole. Like, well, he's like, you should read Gatsby, not Paradise, because that's Meyer Fitzgerald. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Ugh. I hate anybody who just fills their head with what they think is culturally and like societally important instead of just like watching and reading what you want. Enjoy yourself. We're only here for a small amount of time. So why the fuck would you want to just, you know, cut out things that you think would be fun in, in favor of just trying to impress assholes like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, yeah, you you got to you got to learn what you like, you know, and yeah. and dig into it. Well, and like the parents are I mean, Jeff Daniels is such a prick in that movie. Him and Le- yeah, they there's some career defining kind of performances in that movie. It's yeah. um yeah, you definitely don't like anybody. Yeah. No. Even the kid, even the um the, the kid, the little brother is really a shit. Like, you know, he's down in Jack and private. He's, you know, just being such a weird kid. Getting uh, loaded, yeah. I was laughing my ass off when Jesse Eisenberg accidentally, like, whacked Anna Paquin in the nose. Yeah, dude, me too. There goes your night, asshole. <laughs> Dickhead. <laughs> but then, you know, Laura Linney, like, every time they're talking to her, like, she mentions another affair she had. Like, she's sleeping with their tennis teacher. <laughs> like, just Baldwin. Fucking Baldwin, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, a great movie. Powerful. It was powerful. A, Noah Baumbach is becoming the divorce guy. Like, why is that? Do you think? Did it, like? Do you think he's just always been surrounded by divorce? Yeah, and and New York, and that's where he. That's 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 his like. It's like in his blood, you know, New York, Brooklyn. Yeah, these areas where he grew up, and he, he very much uses personal experience to to make movies. And I, I love that. I don't think everybody should do that. I don't think every filmmaker, I don't think that's their bag, but I think Noah Baumbach was made, like was meant to tell stories about his own life. Um, yeah. I, I, I adore him. I mean, I, I think Francis Haw is one of the, one of the stronger movies from the decade. I think uh, the Meyerowitz stories is one of the better Netflix movies with some unbelievable performances from Sandler and Stiller. Um, Never thought I'd say that in the same sentence, but yeah, Bombach has a way. He's got a way of talking about New York people, talking about people who are broken, and uh, it's it's good shit. I'm excited to see what he does next. Do you think that in the Squid and the Whale is he supposed to be, like? I'm assuming it's based on his parents' divorce. I think he's supposed to be the youngest kid. Is my I, mean, I don't think I don't think any of it is that like set in stone but i think yeah he's he's i think he put himself in yeah 
yeah, I hope he's yeah. not more like Jesse Eisenberg because that would just be unfortunate. No, I know. I, I think he, yeah, I think he had issues with what, from what I've read, he had issues with like who to look up to sort of thing. And that, that very much shows with the youngest child in that movie. Um, yeah. When you, yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine with the parents that I grew up with. Um, my childhood was, was awesome. I was able to ask kind of, you know, questions and stuff. So yeah. I just don't, I, I, I can't imagine my dad being like, this is what you have to read because everything else is for losers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, God, uh, you know, I grew up in a loving family as well. And I just, I can't imagine having that kind of pressure 24 seven of just, you know, my parents are geniuses and they know best. Yeah. Like, my parents were just glad I was reading at some point, you know, like they're like, Oh great. He's reading Captain Underpants. That's good. Just, just keep, you do yeah. something. Well, I was always encouraged to, you know, follow my creativity and, you know, find what I liked on my own. And that's yeah. how it yeah, should yeah. be. You should never be told like, don't watch this. That's terrible. Watch this. Even though that is exactly what we do every week, but <laughs> still, I mean, we're not, yeah. not in that way. No, I, I, and I did say, watch this movie. If you're a King fan, watch the dark half. I, I don't think it's for everybody. And I don't think everybody's searching for the dark half. You know, I, I certainly wasn't until I heard of it, yeah. but I think, it ha I think it has a place. Every movie you, you said earlier too, is what's great is when a movie's so bad, we can talk about it. I mean, yeah. talk about, talk about, think about the room. It has an entire, it, it has an entire, you know, like cultural impact because of how bad it is. That's it. And, and I agree with you. It, it is like, there's like a line you can like kind of cross sometimes where you're like, you should or shouldn't watch this. But <laughs> ultimately here on Filmgasm, we believe you should, you should check everything out for yourself. We, we really do. Yeah. Um, and, and there is always going to be things that I'll try to like kind of steer away from just because I know what I am going to fill my personal time with. But when it comes to doing this podcast and searching for stuff, you got to be open. True. Very true. And all we've ever really done is given, you know, the audience, you guys suggestions. I mean, we give our two cents on the films we pick and you can either, you know, roll with that and decide, well, they said it was shit. I, I guess I won't watch it. Or they said it was awesome. I guess I'll check it out. Or, you know, you can contest us say like, well, I heard that was, that was a great movie. I'll check that out myself. You know, we're not, you know, we're not experts by any sense of the word. We're just no, fans no. who love talking about movies and that's it really. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah. there's no, yeah. you know, magic to this show. It's just, we like movies and we want to talk about them. Yeah, man. It's yeah. It's, it, it's definitely a thing that keeps us moving. We've, we've, we're always going to talk about what's going on in the world, but ultimately filmgasm is a movie podcast. We can, we're, we're always going to say that hammer at home, but uh, we're just going to talk about movies and continue to do that. And, uh, I always want to highlight our other podcast, right? Oscar Sunday. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, you know, it's, it's brand new and we just have, we're just four episodes in, uh, we've done Pulp Fiction to five bloods, Rocky in the bedroom, just some really good films. So if you want to go check those out, uh, this upcoming week, we're going to be doing the great dictator from 1940. So that's, that's going to be a blast. We're going to, we're probably going to record that on July 4th. Uh, so that's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that that's pretty that's pretty amazing. We're gonna be doing a movie that's eighty years old. <laughs> yeah, so we're having a blast with that so far, and uh, keep coming back, guys. We really appreciate it. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I know that we've recently 
hit 2000 downloads. That may not be a lot to the big podcast out there, but to us, that's everything. Yeah. Uh, we just hit 50 YouTube subscribers again, not big potatoes, but it's, you know, it's small potatoes, but it's our potatoes. Yes. And I'm proud of those numbers. Damn it. I'm proud of those potatoes. Damn straight. Those are great potatoes. <laughs> um, Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the dark half. God knows we didn't. Uh, <laughs> next week. It's all, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> next we week. We give it a seven. Yeah, seven. I mean, it's a it soft passes. seven, though. <laughs> it, it passes, though. It does pass. <laughs> next week, we go back to found footage horror with a 2014 dud that we are going to give a second chance to. A team of explorers ventures deep into the Paris catacombs and uncovers dark secrets about the city's numerous dead. The Book of Filmgasm giveth and the book taketh away. Next week, we dive into As Above, So Below. If it's as bad as I've heard, then we will have a fun time ripping it to shreds. Or, you know, maybe it's a secret gem that everyone hated, but we'll find something to like. That yeah, happens. man, I've, I've seen it before, but I, I can't remember much of it because I kind of was dozing off so we'll see not a good <laughs> not a good start but <laughs> <laughs> no but we'll see you know we'll see what happens on the rewatch here yes indeed and uh if you want to you know watch along with us uh that movie is available on netflix so that's where yes. we're going to be watching it yes also this sunday tune into oscar sunday here's talk about the great dictator in the 1941 oscars until then if you're a writer keep writing but if you start to hear sparrows Maybe put the black pencil down and switch to Microsoft Office like the rest of us. See you next Wednesday. Mm-hmm.